You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. It's not often that I have the time or perhaps make the time to read a book just for the sheer pleasure of the book. As you all know, most often I'm reading a book for research, undertaking a new book, or a radio broadcast. But biography is by far my favorite genre to read. Knowing very little about either Arthur Conan Doyle, other than his literary accomplishments, or Harry Houdini, a great musician, magician rather, I brought the book Masters of Mystery, The Strange Friendship of Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini by our guest this hour, Christopher Sandford. I'd originally bought the book thinking it was a great gift for Dr. Bob, who has introduced me to every episode of Sherlock Holmes made for TV or film. But once home, I decided to read it myself. For several nights, I had a wonderful group of companions, the author, Chris Sandford, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and Harry Houdini, as well as the community of Americans and those from Britain and others whose journey is told in this marvelous book. So if you're looking for a fascinating story that shares the lives of two great artists, their works and times, I highly recommend Masters of Mystery. Here to share with us more about the lives of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini and how they became friends, leading, I guess one could say, to parallel lives but very different ones, is our guest, Christopher Sandford. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I loved your book. I Really, everything about it. I just love your style. And so I have a question also as an author, but you write about a lot of artists. So why did you decide you wanted to write about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini? Well, it's sort of a childhood fascination with both men. And like you, perhaps, I, I was aware of each of their accomplishments. But it was only recently that I became uh, intrigued by this, this truly strange, what you could call dysfunctional friendship that they had, uh, sort of a frenemies relationship, really. And it began to intrigue me more and more, and, and to my surprise, which is, as an author, I'm sure you know, always one of the first things you're looking at, has the market been covered and has it been saturated already right. to my surprise it really had not been and i just thought as a biographer it was a sort of two for one deal if you will i thought go for two subjects instead of one and hopefully try and mix them up in an interesting way but it all really starts for me um and the book is dedicated to, to an old school i was at many many years ago in england where i quite independently became interested in both men so it was a real pleasure to try and mix them together. You've done it. And I mean, firstly, your style is so easy to sort of join your mind to. It's colorful. There's enough historical fact. There's enough true text from the media and other, you know, sources from their time period that you literally feel, and, and it's really a tribute to your talent, you feel like you're standing in the company of both men, their families, the community, and some of the outrageous things you describe. And I have to say, before I read your book, um, I'm fairly educated about the paranormal, having spent my lifetime involved in it. But I have to say how ignorant I was of the spiritualist movement in the 1920s in which your sort of your story takes place. So um, when you began to do your research, Chris, about either men, how, how did you discover that they had this 
friendship that also was somewhat of a contentious relationship? Well, there there are, I'm glad to say, many first-hand papers and letters still exist from both men. And the Doyle archive is, as, as I mentioned towards the end of the book, is a rich tale unto itself. Um, following his death, it was dispersed uh, essentially through his two younger sons. And I don't think it would be to malign either of those gentlemen, now both dead themselves, to say that the, the literary, uh, the pristine literary reputation of their father kind of took second place to essentially what they could get out of it materially. So the archive and Doyle's letters and his papers on the paranormal began a very strange and circuitous journey in the 30 or 40 years after his death. Mm -hmm. And at one time, for instance, they were lodged uh, in a tax shelter in Switzerland, and the access to them was extremely limited by anyone. In fact, it was, it was impossible to find them. Since the death of his two sons, papers have largely been placed in uh, an archive in London and partially in Cambridge in England. So that was really the, the starting point, those two towns mm -hmm. uh, in Britain. And luckily, I was in England for much of the time when I was researching it. So it, it was not too difficult logistically. But it, once you start reading those letters, a whole new world, and as you say, hopefully one that you can actually sense and feel and become absorbed by, becomes apparent, and you're reading, on the one hand, about this very um, austere man, Doyle, who created the world's perhaps most famous rational detective, and yet at the same time he's speaking in his letters at great length and rhapsodically about fairies and goblins and elves, and it, it, it became obviously apparent early on in the process that this was a fascinating story if only for the ambivalence of, of Doyle's uh, public and private persona. And the more you read the letters, the more that comes out. So that was really the richest part of delving into it for me, was the more you read, the more he became an enigma, and the more he became less like the public image that I grew up with, which mm -hmm. was this slightly forbidding Edwardian gentleman. And underneath that, he was really quite an exotic character and, and in many ways very unconventional. So that was really what fired me and how I got into the research. It's, it's a, and for me as well, I mean, you know, one can be aware of Sherlock Holmes, but I wasn't aware at all of Conan Doyle's leadership all over Europe, if not the world, in trying to promote that there are other dimensions that exist and we have access to them. And, and as you write, you know, af after the war, there were so many men and women who had lost family members, fathers, sons, brothers, uncles. So there was sort of this desperation of wanting to talk to the deceased. Des describe for us, as you do for the reader, the kind of climate that existed in America and in Europe during the time period that Conan Doyle, already a very accomplished, famous author, came into the spiritualist movement. Well, as you say, it was a huge worldwide movement that took a lot of its momentum from the First World War and um, obviously the terrific uh, losses that ensued both in Europe and in the U.S. And as you say, there were suddenly, tragically, millions of 
people who had lost a family member. And many of those people were, for obvious reasons, desperately keen to try and establish some sort of further contact, and, or at least to feel, <clears throat> at least to feel that their, their loved one's lives had not been snuffed out in the absolute sense, obliterated. And I think Doyle himself often referred to this, the, the eternal feeling that there must be more beyond the mortal life, and in whatever shape or form it might be, that death, as he said, um, is not all. Life does not end with the material death. So there was a very strong, prevalent movement there. What began to become apparent, though, in perhaps the early 1920s, was, of course, there was also, a, if you will, a vaudeville or almost a circus-like element to the spiritualism uh, crusade. And some practitioners were perhaps more conscientious than others in trying to present dead spirits to their bereaved family members. There are certainly those who acted out of the purest of motives and who genuinely had no interest other than to try and reunite families with their loved ones. And there were others who, shall we say, had a more commercial approach and interest. And that's where Houdini comes in so intriguingly to the picture. Because, of course, here was a man who knew everything there was to know about stagecraft and about how to make things appear uh, than they, differently than they actually were. He was the ultimate illusionist. And he soon became convinced that what he was witnessing in much of the spiritualist crusade was no more than a giant illusion based, on the one hand, on the stagecraft of some of the vaudevillians who took it up as a way of making a living in the 1920s, and on the other hand, by this huge and, and he thought very susceptible, if not gullible, audience who desperately wanted some reassurance and who were getting it through all the wrong means. So there you have the clash that I think is at the center of the book. Uh, Doyle, who to the, to the end of his own life, was adamant that although there might have been spurious mediums and charlatans, the vast majority of people who worked in that world were genuine and sincere, and Houdini, who shook his head ruefully and said, I'm afraid not, and indeed I know many of the spiritualists mm -hmm. from a previous world myself, when I used to deal with them on, on the vaudeville stage when they were doing other acts before this particular crusade gained momentum. So there's the essential clash at the heart of the story. And, and it's so interesting because when you consider Harry Houdini, who was sort of the master of headlining, and I mean, they were both great orators, as you clearly show, and they both had the command of the stage. You know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle talking to thousands of people about the spiritualist reality, and Harry Houdini, you know, really revving them up into a state of a fit of some sort. I mean, they, it was interesting because here you have a magician saying that what is invisible is not real, and then you have a physician and author being Sir Arthur Conan Doyle saying what you can't see is real. And so it's, it's, there's kind of a reversal. So let's talk a little bit about um, the way the media played a role in the competition between them, because I, I got a sense of that in the way you presented their story. Well, yes, I, I think particularly in the U.S., 
the, the media in the early 1920s was perhaps more vibrant and certainly more prone to hysterical, um, hyperbolic headlines than it is today. And there were no or few restraints on it uh, legally or in, in the other sense. So when Doyle appeared in the U.S., which he did twice, specifically to talk about the paranormal, there was a hysterical, um, I think would be the only mm-hmm. word to describe it, a hysterical press reaction. And every word he spoke was amplified and distorted and exaggerated. And I think to his own shock and horror at times, some of the things he said about the afterworld were immediately um, relayed through the tabloid press is, is quite differently. They asked him, for instance, can a man smoke a cigar in heaven? And Doyle made some whimsical, I think he thought, rather flippant reply. And, of course, it was the next day's headline. Man can, man can enjoy cigars in heaven, says famed author. So it all became a hugely inflamed, and I think it was, it was a good way of the circulation war at the time. And Houdini was never um, a martyr to false modesty. I think we could say he had a very clear eye of his own market worth and his own reputation. So when he saw that this was a way to perpetuate his own fame and perhaps to extend his life uh, in the public eye into middle age when his physical powers were beginning to wane and thus his escapology was perhaps on the wane, this was a way for him to keep the public scrutiny that he loved. So he had no compunction about jumping into the debate and fanning it himself. And so you had two men who were quite well aware of their own value and their own market value, Um, one of whom at least was um, healthily egocentric, Houdini. And you have a rapidly excited American press, and you have all the ingredients there for the sort of shrill and and enjoyably over-the-top uh, headlines that you saw in the 1920s. As I read your book, I thought, boy, this would be a great movie. <laughs> I, I, I live in hope. <laughs> I, do, I, I will hope for you. Thank no, you. I, I think you've just, you've just, you know, I've, I've read so many biographies because that's the genre I enjoy just for the pleasure of reading. And as I said in the beginning, I bought this for my husband because he's a big Sherlock Holmes fan. And I have myself now seen everything there is to see, I think, at least three or four mm-hmm. times. And when when I read your book, it, it opened a door up to my thinking about not only mass media, but also the horrible aspect of media sensationalism, whether it's about politics or world affairs or something, in this case, of the invisible realms. And so when I think about Randy the Magician, who we call the unamazing Randy in our household, from Psycop, who went around trying to really ruin any kind of scientific laboratory work that was going on with homeopathy or other important advances, I feel, in science, it it kind of made me feel like, wow, that's a lot like Harry Houdini, kind of taking the stage of other people's momentum, exploiting it for themselves and their own reputation, not by adding anything new, but by interfering with anything new that might happen. And I I found that pretty amazing. 
We're going to take a little break and then we'll come back and pick up some more about Harry Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, our guest, if you've just joined us. And I encourage you all to buy this book, Masters of Mystery. So coming back to the strange part of the friendship between Conan Doyle and Houdini, they had a a rather vigorous um, exchange in letters as well as exchange through press reports and that editorialization. But in the beginning, it was rather friendly. So explain for our audience what happened over the course of time between the two men to really allow you to rightly say the strange friendship between the two men. Well, yes, it did undergo a huge change. Uh, I think at the beginning it was it was dictated largely by, on the one hand, Doyle's very formal uh, Edwardian sense of manner, his, his extremely what you might call good English manners. And he saw Houdini as uh, a well-meaning young man, as he called him, who with a certain amount of education and tutoring by, by him, Doyle, could perhaps be educated up to the sort of level of Doyle's own understanding. So he was slightly condescending, perhaps, and yet nonetheless very formally polite relationship. Houdini, on his part, was always a frustrated author, and I think very conscious of the fact that he had limited formal education. For the rest of his life, loved to rub shoulders with men of letters, associate with what he thought of as the intellectual elite. And so Doyle was an obvious godsend from that point of view. And I think Houdini courted Doyle for the reflected glory to some extent that Mm -hmm. he could get. So each man had a a sort of agenda above and beyond the specifics of, of their argument. It became less friendly and ultimately very bitter after a specific incident that took place. There was, a, there was a very dramatic break in their friendship. And it, to be exact, it took place in June of 1922, and it happened in a room in the old Ambassador Hotel in Atlantic City, which I believe no longer exists. So it's part of some huge casino complex. But in those days, it was a large, rather gloomy-looking family hotel on the beach there. And the Doyle and the Houdini families both found themselves staying there one sunny afternoon in June of 1922. Houdini had always had a very close relationship with his mother, Cecilia, who had died, I think, nine or perhaps ten years before these events. She died in 1913, so nine years earlier. Doyle and his wife had recently decided that they could effect automatic writing from the spirits and that Lady Doyle in particular, under certain circumstances, could act as a a medium uh, for written messages from the beyond. And these two convinced Houdini to join them in their hotel room in Atlantic City where they drew the blinds and joined hands and eventually Lady Doyle produced 13 pages of writing, which she was adamant had come to her unconsciously or subconsciously from the late Mrs. Houdini, Houdini's mother. And there are various versions, two very distinct versions, of what happened next. 
both the Doyles were adamant that this was a completely genuine message from the beyond, and that Houdini himself had accepted it and had been tearfully um, grateful and overcome with emotion at receiving it. And they saw this as the moment when Houdini went from being a skeptic to being a believer. Houdini himself said nothing, at, at least initially, following the seance, but not long afterwards began to raise doubts about it and ultimately publicly ridiculed the Doyles. One of the reservations he had and that he expressed very forcibly in the newspapers was that this letter, the message that came through apparently from his mother, was written in almost classically Edwardian formal English. And as he pointed out, his late mother, being Hungarian, had never mastered the English language, let alone was able to speak it quite as fluently as the message that came to him. And there were other discrepancies and inconsistencies that he later pointed out. So once he went into print denigrating Lady Doyle as a medium, um, the the war was declared. That was the end of the even the surface friendship. Mm-hmm. And from then on, it became an open battle of the two men. And I think also uh, Conan Doyle's sense of chivalry and his obvious love for his wife was also offended because he saw that this had been an attack by Houdini on his wife as much as it was on him. And that, I think, added to his fury in, in the subsequent fight that took place. So from that moment in Atlantic City onwards, the gloves were off and it, it dropped even the pretense of friendship and became a war for the rest of their lives. And it was interesting to me that Houdini, because people often make this common error, at least from my own experience as well as my own understanding, is that the medium will translate into the language they know whatever it is they've heard. It's like an automatic kind of translation. Like in computers, there's zeros and ones. And my own experience as a telepath is that that's what happens. Is A foreigner, speaking a foreign language here or there, can speak to you, and your mind automatically has this capacity to turn it into a language you know. And I, I was thinking how people have made that error. The, the exact one Houdini made, that that there's this assumption that if somebody has passed on, that when they communicate to the living, that the living has to tell you in the language they hear it. But that's not actually, at least from what my experience and other mediums that I know, that's not what happened. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of trip point. And the other thing that you make such a beautiful um, case for is, is kind of the complicated way in which Arthur Conan Doyle went about doing the research that interested him so much because his wife, Jean, as you pointed out, was a medium and made contact with a being who claimed he was a 10,000-year-old scribe, Phineas. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yes, that's right. And this became, I mean, it's a peculiar thing, and I've seen it also in the quote-unquote New Age movement with channeling that people get addicted to getting information from somewhere else other than their own conscious judgment. And Conan Doyle did that, meaning, you know, Phineas became the go-to guy for even when they should start a vacation. So I I think that this really complicated um, how people saw him, even when what he would be talking about might be credible. What do you think? Yes, I, I think he strained the friendship of many of his supporters towards the end of his life who were prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt 
in terms of his his seances specifically with with uh, that seemed to materialize spirits. But when he began to increasingly lecture them that the end of the world was nigh, which became one of Phineas's repeated warnings that there was going to be an awful cataclysm that would engulf the planet and that we had all better prepare for an imminent doom because it was it, it was coming sooner or later. Many of his Doyle's closest friends, I think, began to lose patience. And um, to begin with, there were even specific dates given, as we see even now from time to time, for Armageddon was prophesied for various dates. And when these days came and went, without the promised apocalypse, um, Doyle had to rationalize why it had not happened according to the prediction. And some of his rationalizations also began to strain, I think, the patience of his audience. So towards the end of his life, it's fair to say that he risked his reputation. And you can say that he did that bravely, fully knowing that he would be ridiculed, and there's evidence he was well aware of what he was risking, or that this was a case of a man whose own losses, and he he was bereaved no fewer than 11 times uh, as a result of the First World War, including his first son and his only brother. Uh, you, can, you could develop a case for saying that his mental faculties were to some extent impaired, and that as Houdini said of him, he was a man who desperately wanted to believe to the extent that he suspended his normal critical faculties. So it's, it's an enigma. The other thing I would mention is that even when Doyle did descend into the world of 10,000-year-old um, channeling and prophesying, prophesying of doom, uh, he was still able, I mean, he was not given over to this to the exclusion of everything else. He was writing, for instance, Sherlock Holmes stories right throughout this period. So again, you have this strange duality of a prophet of doom and a man who communes with 10,000-year-old spirits on a daily basis, and yet he's still writing these very uh, coherent and cleverly structured stories about the world's ultimate rational forensic detective. So it was a strange sense of, if you will, the daytime Doyle and the nighttime Doyle still existing, almost a case for Sherlock Holmes in itself, perhaps. You could call it the strange case of Arthur Conan Doyle. There you go. That's what someone in Hollywood will pick up on. Don't say it too loudly. (laughs) (laughs) They'll turn it all inside out. Your book is just great as it is. Uh, And one of the things I found interesting, and again, you know, I've spent my entire life in the paranormal and studying it and working with the who's who of the new paradigm, both in the paraphenomenal work as well as physics. And so much of what we're discovering was was promoted by the spiritualist movements throughout the ages, um, but we seem to speak of it in different language depending on the century and the time within the century. I was surprised to find out that the Scientific American played a role in all of this and that they were engaged in in also trying to find out who was a genuine medium, what was genuine mediumship. I'm thinking if John Edwards had been had been incarnated, then what would they have made of him? Uh, yeah. So what what did the Scientific American do to kind of push these issues around in the public? 
Well, essentially, the Scientific American offered a cash prize, um, which was in total $5,000 at the time, which I think would be well over $100,000 today, um, perhaps even nearly a quarter of a million. So a significant cash prize. If anyone could manifest a, what they called a psychic or occult phenomena to their satisfaction and under test conditions as they saw it. So I think what they were trying to do was to bring a, a scientific um, filter, if you will, to the then rampant movement that we talked about earlier that took, that took hold after the First World War and to try and cut through some of the more exotic and fringe entrepreneurs in the spiritualist movement and see if there really was someone or more than one person who could demonstrate beyond all scientific shadow of a doubt that they had this gift. And but, but they appointed a far, committee. Chris, Chris, before you go too far, yes. what, they, what they seemed bent on having manifest, though, were actual physical sounds or physical things that would appear out of nowhere, like the yogis produced yes, from... Yes, essentially mm-hmm. it was a physical um, manifesting medium that they, they were interested in. I mean... They, they tested, for instance, um, a case where there was allegedly a, a case of X-ray vision where a man claimed he could read a, a scrap of paper securely locked inside a steel box and uh, where a man claimed that he was possessed by a spirit who spoke to him even though he was, and was able to levitate, for instance, lights and other objects through a room even though he was under restraint. It was on that sort of level, yes. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they, they had a scrutinizing committee, the magazine nominated, and four of the five members of the committee were academic. Um, they were either members, for instance, of the Harvard Psychology Department, or they had some other psychiatric or psychological background. And the fifth member of the committee was none other than Harry Houdini, And it was Houdini who set himself up as the man who would cut through uh, some of the flim-flam, as he called it, of these aspirants, of the claimants to the prize, and point out that they had done no more than he had done for most of his professional career in terms of, for instance, slipping out of knots and ropes and restraints, uh, of which he was a past master, of course. And it was his, he saw himself very much as the medium buster, if you will, mm-hmm. of the five. And it became a story in itself because, of course, the committee members began to fall out amongst themselves. Some of them were more prone to credit certain mediums and manifestations than others. And Houdini remained consistently the naysayer of the committee, permanently the man who tried to point out what the others he thought had missed. So that became a schism in itself, mm-hmm. and the committee ended in the, the whole Scientific American initiative ended in disarray and acrimony, and they fell out amongst themselves. And Houdini added his four committee members to his long list of professional enemies. And, it, and so it, they, they joined Doyle in his estimation. Well, so it was, it, it, and it, it, it interests it, me because I said, you know, Randy the magician who went around doing the same kind of showmanship to disprove anything paranormal, 
because all they were looking for was physical manifestation, and, and yet most of the work has nothing to do with physical manifestation. It has to do with information. So it's, it's very interesting to me what has happened over the centuries now um, to this kind of work. And when you think about the change today that you have physicists talking about the observer effect, that a person looking at something changes it, that having the presence of somebody who is really negative and really opposed can in fact affect the outcome of an action by somebody else. So I just thought that interesting. Look, we're going to take our last break of the hour, and then we'll come right back and talk a little bit more about some of the other traits they may have shared in common in terms of their natures and what was dissimilar. So, Chris, when you look at these lives, I mean, they they were extraordinarily different, but they both really were driven to prove whatever it was they were driven to prove. And there there were other commonalities, I felt. What, after you studied their lives, did you see they shared in common? Well, yes, they they were, as you say, on one hand, on the one hand, very different, almost comically so, Uh, even standing side by side, Doyle and Houdini looked kind of um, mismatched. Doyle was this big, shambling, six-foot-four, rather bulky Englishman, and Houdini was, to me, looked like a, a jockey. He was very compact, small, wiry. Um, his outfits usually didn't fit him very well. And there's a sort of comic picture right there in the contrast. Um, they did have certain underlying characteristics, though, that they shared. I hesitate to delve too far into the... Uh, psychology of the two men, but you could certainly see a way the way in which they grew up, uh, albeit thousands of miles apart, was quite similar in many ways, eerily similar. They were both very attached to their mothers, almost unnaturally attached. And as we said earlier, it was Houdini's mother who the Doyles tried to bring him back to or bring back to him rather than Houdini's father. And they both, Doyle and Houdini, were extremely sentimentally attached to their mothers. Um, Really, I think their careers in the early stages were an effort to impress their mothers and perhaps to also um, almost look after financially, um, shelter their mothers and their extended families. And I think each man was motivated hugely by mother approval. And you could also say, conversely, that each man had a, in the conventional sense of the word, a failed father, um, in that Houdini's father emigrated from Hungary to the U.S. and never really found his feet in the New World. He had a, a kind of checkered career and at one time practiced as a rabbi, but never really had um, materially or personally rewarding career and died rather young in his early 50s and leaving the family nothing um, tangible except uh, a large number of debts. Doyle's father was a very similar case in some ways. He was a man who held down um, a respectable enough job for some years uh, in Scotland working for local government, but also had a parallel career as an artist and a frustrated painter and eventually took to drink, I think partially because of the frustrations of his artistic career not getting anywhere, and died in what was then called the lunatic asylum. Uh, We'd now probably call it um, almost, it was a sort of therapy or a 
place of, uh, I won't say drying out, but it was a place where men who were troubled by addictions of one sort or another were sent in Scotland and also died in his early middle age. So you could say that both men were motivated by this strange fractured family upbringing, trying to impress their mothers and perhaps to rise above the rather bittersweet examples uh, of their fathers. Mm -hmm. You've just done a a stunning job of drawing out the qualities of both. And if if, you know, because when I find I, I write about people that aren't quite so colorful, but biblically historical. I did a book on the seven prophetesses of Israel and had to study their lives. Well, there's not a lot written, you know, yeah. so a lot of it you have to just sort of kind of get a sense of, but you you had some historical materials and you had other people's characterizations as well as people historically having written about them. But when, when you engaged them, because as you mentioned at the start of tonight's show, you had a childhood love of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's writings and Sherlock Holmes, etc. And Harry Houdini, of course, is a colorful character to any child who ever thinks about anything about magic. He always comes up. But what did you learn from them as you did this work? Well, I suppose the, the obvious um, answer is that there, there was much more to each man than merely the public persona that they presented. Another thing they had in common that became apparent was that each man uh, grew weary of his most famous creation mm-hmm. long before the public did. And I think part of their struggle over the spiritualist debate was each man trying to, if you will, become something that they weren't, essentially, or that they had not been. Doyle, we sometimes forget, because Sherlock Holmes, of course, remains apparently immortal to this day, and and unstoppable flow of Holmes merchandise and accessories. But Doyle himself tired of Holmes within a mere year of inventing him. It's extraordinary to think that, that he started really life in 1889, And by 1890 or 1891, Doyle was actively trying to kill him off. And, of course, famously did kill him off in one story, only to have to bring him back because of public demand. Well, you know, while I was sitting here on the break, I said to our producer, Ms. Cortner, I said, "I I have a great scheme. So he could kill off Sherlock Holmes, and then believing as he does in the spiritualist movement, Sherlock can come from the other side. Advice, you know, a yep. living, a, a living detective, and I'm thinking now that's what Hollywood will do. That's, an, that's another movie scenario there. Isn't exactly there. there. Now I've given you two that they might twist around yep. and make happen. And and when you look at them, because you are a biographer, and I was stunned by the fascinating people you've written about: Steve McQueen, Roman Polanski, and then a bunch of rock and rollers: Mick Jagger, Eric Clapton, Kurt Cobain, David Bowie. Sting, Bruce Springsteen, Keith Richards, Paul McCartney. How do you pick who you're going to focus on? And and what is it that intrigues you about any one? Because you're obviously attracted to artists in general. Um, what is it about being a biographer that interests you? Well, I, I can see there's a bit of a, a leap there from, for instance, um, Bruce Springsteen to um, Conan Doyle or someone. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know. It was never, to be honest, it was never a conscious decision to write rock music specifically. It was, um, I happened to have met Mick Jagger many years ago, and perhaps with the Doyle and Houdini story, 
what struck me was how different he obviously was. And he and I shared, if nothing else, uh, a love of the eccentric, lovable English sport of cricket. Mm-hmm. And I, as I watched this man drinking a cup of tea, politely applauding this very gentle, sort of bucolic cricket game, and thought, gosh, this is the same guy who whipped tens of thousands of audience members into a sort of frenzy in sports stadiums around the world, I began to see, if you will, a contrast. And so Jagger interested me on that level. And of course, having written that particular book, you're then offered another book um, of a roughly similar genre. And um, I didn't feel inclined to say no at the time. So before you know it, you've done six or seven like that. But I think if, if there was one thing that I could say is interesting to me, and I hope comes through in the book to some extent or another, it's to try and bring out the ambiguities in people who are famous for one particular thing or for, who present one image. And, of course, in every case have, to some degree or another, a different persona underneath the main one. And I, I try and bring out the full personality. And I think this particular book, uh, Doyle and Houdini, was rich in that sense, if nothing else, because it does have this very strange, um, sort of almost black and white contrast between their public persona and the struggle that was going on just underneath the surface. So that always interests me, that, that tension or mm-hmm. that contradiction between a public and a private person. And and also, I think you so well characterized through both of their lives and their successes and their challenges, the disposition of the society. And that's one of the things I think, Chris, that you capture so beautifully by being able to go into the public records and describe just so vividly what the scenes were like in the auditoriums that they spoke at or what it was like when they were on the stage or you've just done an exquisite job I mean I like I said you know I I don't get a chance to just read a book because I feel like reading it um, because I'm also an author and I'm a researcher so like yourself I end up having to read a lot of other people's work in order to get a general understanding of a field but I just want to congratulate you on having brought to life two amazingly different characters, but with such deep convictions that it's really a portrait, I think, of what any person can go through in their lifetime between believing one thing and then changing and believing something else, or being so committed that you lose yourself in the commitment and forget about, you know, how it is you get to bringing other people along with you. Well, I I really, I'm very pleased you enjoyed it, though, and, uh, all I can say is I, I did my best job, and I became, when I was writing it, I became absorbed by the story, which is, I think, a good sign, mm-hmm. as opposed to just sort of counting the words, if you will. Oh, absolutely. No, I, more pages. That it, translates. It's a good story in itself, I hope. Well, you've done a beautiful job. Again, Masters of Mystery, The Strange Friendship of Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini, a Palgrave Macmillan 2011 book. I encourage all of you to read it before it becomes a Hollywood film. Christopher Sanford is the author, and you can find a link to his work at 21stCenturyRadio.com. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus. And we hope you enjoyed the show.